0: Well, good morning. Here we are in our last lesson of First and Second Samuel. We have spent two years on this big chunk of Scripture, 55 chapters we have gone through. Um, and I'm sure you love that in the daily Bible reading that just yesterday we also concluded our reading of 2 Samuel. Um, and I especially loved that over the last month, we got a whole refresher from First Samuel, the beginning of it, all the way to 2 Samuel. And uh, you might notice when you read it or remember that it was quite different when we first started. The beginning of 1 Samuel started before Israel even had a king, uh, but they wanted one so bad. They wanted to be like all the nations around them, and God warned them that, this was not a good idea, that having a human king would cause some problems. But the people did not listen. They wanted one anyway, and so God gave in, and he let them have a king. Uh, It would have been so much better if they would have listened to God and followed God as their king. Uh, God knew what he was doing. But instead, we saw Chapter after chapter, lesson after lesson, uh, the kingdom was what we often call a hot mess. Um, But God used this crucial time in Israel's history for good, and it was certainly recorded for our good as well. Um, So here we are at the end of it all. Uh, We had this huge book, right? First and Second Samuel was originally one huge book. And we have been studying this last couple of weeks what we think of as the appendix of the book. Uh, The author added these four chapters at the end here very purposefully to give us a fuller picture of David's reign. So today we're going to be looking at that last chapter that was put there. It's like this last important piece of the puzzle, the final words that the author wants to leave us with. And I I think you'll see as we study this chapter that in many ways, it summarizes the entire reign of David. We have this human man, the sinful man. uh, So he sins and then he repents and then he gets back up and he's greatly used by God. Uh, And if I were to summarize it in two words, I would say he's in this chapter and all throughout the book he's imperfectly faithful. It's like he is a great example to us and and then he's not. Um, but even when he's not, there's a lot we can learn from him, um, and we certainly learn over and over about God's grace and his forgiveness to use a sinner like David and like us. So if you haven't turned there already, turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 24. We're going to jump into this last chapter to learn from David one last time, Uh, a little like an encore. You know, we've heard the whole chronological story up to chapter 20, but there's this one more narrative uh, that really comes from earlier in his life that's tagged on at the end that the author wants us to learn from. So 2 Samuel chapter 24 reads, Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord the king still see it. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. So the next Few verses, Joab and his men did that numbering. That's verses five through eight. It took nine months and 20 days. Let me get to that final count in verse nine. Let's read it. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. Let's keep reading down to verse 13. Verse 10. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days' pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. So let's just stop there and think through what's going on. Uh, Verse 1, we see that God is doing something behind the scenes. He is angry with Israel again. Uh, So he incites David against them. So there's more than meets the eye in this account. Um, It really just goes to show that God's sovereignty over everything, over every event in this chapter, even over David's sin, is just mind-blowing. But the attention of the chapter really goes to what David did. Uh, And clearly it was a big deal, super serious, right? I mean, he gave him three options as consequences for what he did. He could have three years famine, he could have three months of running from his enemies, or three days of plague. And it clearly wasn't the census itself. We know that because we've seen in Scripture there's times when a census was commanded, that it's what they were supposed to do. Or there's passages that describe how you are to carry out a census. So a census isn't wrong in and of itself. There's something else going on here. Um, And whatever it is, it is clear to God that it is a sin it's eventually clear to David that it's a sin, uh, and even Joab, he senses something is off. You can see that in verse three. Joab says, "May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord the king still see it. But why does my Lord the King delight in this thing? Uh, in other words, your God can give you all the men you need. Well, what is the purpose of this? Why now? And David doesn't give a reason. He doesn't specify why exactly. Um, Perhaps, you know, because he's counting military strength, he is wanting to conquer land that God has not given him to conquer. He is power hungry. He is wanting more control than what God has said, this is for you to take control of. Um, Perhaps he is trusting in the strength of his troops rather than trusting in the Lord. Maybe even idolizing that kind of security or power. Uh, he might just want to know how awesome he is, right? Reveling in the numbers. Look at the power that I have. Look at all this glory I have, in a sense. Whatever the motive, uh, there is no mention of David going to God, saying, God, should I do this? Would this be the right thing to do right now? Or seeking godly counsel. It seems to be all self-motivated. And so he sends off Joab and all the commanders of the army for almost 10 months to do this tedious, task for selfish reasons and that of course is a problem with a human king Uh, a human king is not going to simply operate for the good of the people and for the glory of God and if we were to think long and hard enough we would say the same is true of ourselves Uh, whether it be a neutral thing we do whether it be a good thing we do it often does come with a mixed bag of motives Uh, And God sees our motives. He sees why we do what we do just as clearly as he sees the action itself. So we need to make sure, because this matters to God, we should continually check our motives. That's point number one. Continually check your motives. Motives are so tricky because as Christians... We have a redeemed new heart, right? We want to please God. That's who we are to the core. But yet, we're in this sinful body. Uh, We have this flesh that is weak. We still have this selfishness that, that's waging war against our soul. And so it is hard to continually keep our hearts in line where they should be lined up. You know, it's like they want to please God. It's going down that road and then it just veers off a little. You know, just a, a little bit of fighting for control here and maybe a little greed here, a little self-glory here, maybe a lot of selfishness here. But we're trying to keep it in line, but it just keeps veering off a little bit. Wouldn't it be easier if we could just do the right thing and call it a day, you know? I did what I was supposed to do. Um, But the Bible makes clear that that's not how it works. We need to not only do the right thing, but we need to do it for the right reasons. There's a lot of passages that are great examples of that. Um, James 4, 3 speaks of prayer, and it says, You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So we can pray with the wrong motives uh, Matthew 6:1 speaks of the righteous deeds we do. Matthew 6:1 says, "Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven." Even preaching the gospel. Philippians 1:17 says, "The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment." You can preach the gospel with selfish ambition. Um, or even giving. 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So we could give with a cheerful heart, or we could give out of compulsion. Totally godly things, but completely tainted by selfishness. And We can't just stop right? We can't just stop doing the things that God wants us to do. You know, uh, my motives for reading my Bible and praying aren't the best right now. So I guess I'm just going to stop those things. I mean, that would be easier, right? Okay, my motives are off. Now I'm going to stop, but we can't. We've got to continue to do the things God wants us to do, continue to try to get our heart in track and keep moving forward. And that's with everything, not just those godly things that we mentioned, but anything, any kind of decision you need to make. Uh, the things you say, the places you go, uh, the people you spend time with. Our heart needs to be kept in line with wanting to please the Lord above all else. Motive work reminds me of golf. I don't golf, so I don't really know, but I've tried to golf long enough to know that I don't wanna golf because there is so much to think about. I mean, I've just gone to hit a bucket of balls a number of times in my life, and every time I go, I get the whole shebang, the lesson. So you're supposed to keep your feet, you know, a certain distance apart, like shoulder width or something. And then your knees are supposed to be kind of relaxed. And your hands are a certain way. And your, you know, shoulders are supposed to be relaxed this way. Look at the ball. Put your arms this way. Swing all the way back. Keep your eyes on the ball. It's like, what? I have a headache with this leisurely activity. Can I just hit the ball? Right? And there it is with our motives and our lives. No, you can't just make a decision or serve in this way, or serve in that way, or do this or do that, at least if you want to do it right. Uh, and you know thinking of golf, I think they say that the more you do it, eventually it becomes more natural the right form comes together better, you know. Uh, I'm sure that's true of our motives in a sense too. The more you work on your heart, the more you weed out those sinful, selfish desires that you have, uh, the more your motives will probably be in line, or at least you'll notice when they veer off quicker. Uh, Like a professional golfer, you know, you might be able to do greater things better, but I bet they would always say you can never check out. You can never just stop being mindful of your form. And so it is with our motives. It's always going to take work. We are always going to have to think about it and to keep our mind engaged with why it is we do what we do. Why do we want what we want? Not only is there a lot to think about, it's certainly a lot to pray about. That's got to be the number one weapon we use against bad motives is coming before the Lord and saying, you know, these are the things that I do. These are the things that I, I think it's why I'm doing what I do. And God, help it to please you. Help it to really be what you want from me, not just what I do, but why I do it. Uh, help me to rid that selfishness from me, to really want to please you above all else. Uh, maybe even help me see what would be the selfish census that I would be tempted to do. You know, where is it that I would try to assess uh, for my own self-glory, to assess uh, my popularity, to assess my success in this way, to assess my looks, to assess what people think of me, whatever it is that would be focused in on myself. And God, help me to stop desiring that so much. And if you have to take something from me, take it. If you have to make me fall on my face, make me fall on my face, whatever it is, God, I want my heart to be holy. I want to be holy to the core if we were to pray that regularly, if we were to have that kind of heart check, even on a daily basis, right? As you go about your day, you think, okay, this is what I'm going to do today. God, I want to please you in all of it. The mundane things, the big things, the small things, whatever it is, God, I want my heart to please you in it. How much harder it would be to veer off for a little while, where even maybe our motives started good and then they went bad. We should be constantly going before God saying, I want my heart to please you. Think if David had done that that morning, what tragedy would have been spared. 70,000 people were killed because of the action that he did because of his bad motives. And it's ironic, you know, when you think about it. He was glorying in his numbers. He wanted big numbers. And so what did God take from him? He took 70,000. we got to be careful. What is it our heart wants so much, too much? That may be the very thing that God has to use to wake us up, to take it away. That pain is what's going to hurt us. So we want to keep our motives in check so we don't have the pain of discipline, uh, but also so we don't have the loss of reward. Um, Matthew 6.1 that I read earlier about doing our righteousness for the wrong reasons in that text, it talks about the fact that if you are doing your righteousness to be seen by others, well, there's your reward. Whatever good you get from that in that moment, from people seeing you, that's all you get uh, because you're going to have no reward from your father in heaven. It's like, it's like a waste of an opportunity to please God is what it is. Uh, but really, we don't want to find ourselves where David was at. Uh, look at verse 10. Just imagine how this must have felt. Verse 10 says, But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Oh, that heart realization when you just realize you totally messed up. You were foolish. Your heart did not please the Lord. We've got to keep our motives in check so that they don't veer off and we find ourselves with that kind of conviction and guilt. But knowing that we probably will veer off at times, Uh, we can be thankful for David's example uh, because though he did mess up, he recognized it, he repented, um, and even as he's disciplined for his sin, his heart is soft and it trusts in the Lord. And we see that not only in verse 10, where he confesses his sin, but in his response to his consequence. Let's read that. Verse 13 and 14, it says, So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. What a hard spot David was in. That's a huge decision. and I can't imagine any decision that we will face that will have such major ramifications. How do you even decide something that would impact so many people? Well, this is how he decides, verse 14. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. So essentially, he's choosing that third option, Because it's God's hand that will control the outcome. Of course, you know, if it's three months that he's being chased by his enemies, his enemies are in charge. And even if it was three years of famine, they would then be dependent on the nations around them. And so he's thinking, I would rather be in God's hands. That is more safe. I can trust in God's mercy more than I possibly could the mercy of my enemies. It still wasn't easy, right? He said, I'm in great distress. You can imagine that darkness, right? That horrible feeling. I have done wrong, and now I've caused this major problem. I don't know how bad it's going to be. I don't know if this is the right decision. What is going to happen from here? But he knew that God is still worthy of trust. As one commentary pointed out, we need our best theology for our darkest moments. And that's as true as David as it is for us. Uh, Point number two, trust God even in the dark. Trust God even in the dark. Because darkness is going to come in your life too. Uh, It might be the result of your sin, uh, like it was for David. It might be the result of someone else's sin that impacts your life. Could just be life's trials, uh, the problems that are going to come your way because we live in a fallen world. But there's going to come a time where you're going to be in this spot where It's a huge decision you have to make. Uh, There's going to be big ramifications or you're going to feel the weight of something where you don't know what's going to happen. You're going to fear. You're going to be concerned. There's going to be unknowns. And if there's ever a time we need our confidence rooted in God, it's then. One line worth memorizing, it would be Psalm 1830. Psalm 1830 says, This God, His way is perfect. Our God, His way is perfect is perfect. We can trust in him. Or a passage you might already have memorized, Isaiah 26, three through four says, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever for the Lord God is an everlasting rock when you're dealing with some kind of darkness, some kind of unknown, it is. that's when your mind wants to go in so many different places. You want to fix your attention here on this concern, on what could happen, on the future, all these things, but that's when your mind needs to go straight to God. You fixate your eyes on Him. Your mind needs to be stayed on Him because He is the everlasting rock, the unmovable one, the one who is forever as He is, and we can trust in Him. I had to trust God in the dark around this time last year, literally. Uh, I was driving up to Palomar Mountain. Have you been to Palomar Mountain? Why? I don't recommend driving in the dark. Um, I was driving solo, and I'll be honest, uh, I am directionally challenged. I mean, getting lost is kind of a normal thing in my life. But I'm going up this mountain thinking, I got my phone, right? It's got a map. How hard can it be? Yes, well, I thought I was going to die. Uh, The road, super narrow. I don't know how two cars could possibly fit on this road. And it is totally pitch dark. There's nothing, no lights anywhere. And there is no cars on the road because no one is as foolish to be driving this road as I am. at the steering wheel, you know, looking over, trying to see as far as I possibly can, and oftentimes, all of a sudden, a mountain would be in front of me because the road just kept going like this, back and forth, and back and forth. And as I'm looking, sometimes there'd be a log in the middle of the road, but it was too late. So, da, 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 you know, it's going underneath my car. Uh, one time, I made a wrong turn, and when you're on a tiny little road on a mountain, how do you turn around when you make a wrong turn? I don't know. I mean, I, you just kind of. <laughs> but it didn't work. I didn't have enough room. After a few of these, you know, maybe stopping with some tears, I eventually just reversed back like an eighth of a mile, and I'm not even good at reversing. Okay, my phone, right? The map totally doesn't work. No service at all. I have no help. I'm like, okay, I'll call somebody, just hear the voice of someone. Maybe they can help me come rescue me, something. Nothing. No service. There I am in the total dark, literally trusting God with my life, thinking, all right, God, either get me up this mountain or help me to die fast. I don't know. I don't know how I'm going to do this. I was in great distress. Eventually, I saw those lights of the uh, campground, and it was like the promised land like the longest hour of my life, but I made it. I looked the next day at the map when I had service, And it was insane. I mean, I think I I laughed because it was crazy that I was able to do that little road in the dark. But think about the fact that from God's vantage point, none of that was dark. His viewpoint was far better than a Google map ever could be. He could see way up high, he could see down low, close, he could see all the logs in the road, he could see, he could make a path where there was no path. None of it was darkness to him. Yes, I was scared because I had no idea how to get up that mountain, but God knew, and he was the one who I was trusting in. It reminds me of what Psalm 139 says. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day. For darkness is as light with you. When we think there is unknown darkness, know that it does not phase God. It doesn't matter if it's the hardest thing of your life, uh, if it's a scary diagnosis, if it's bad news, um, if you have been totally betrayed, if you have lost everything. None of it is darkness with God. He is sovereign over all of it. He sees all of it. He has a plan for it. He can make a way for you to get through it in a way you never thought there was a way. You can trust in him. You might think, though, but I'm the one who got myself in this darkness. Now I'm dealing with the consequences of my own sin or maybe even sin from years back. I'm still dealing with the mess that I made. How is God going to help me in that? But is that not exactly where David was at. Even after David sinned, he knew he could trust God. He knew God was sovereign even over that, and he could get his eyes off himself and trust in him. He even expected that God's mercy would show up, and it did. Uh, We see that in verse 15 and 16. Let's look back at the text where we see God's mercy prevail. It says, verse 15, so the Lord sent a pestilence on, the land, on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died with the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough. Now stay your hand. The plague could have kept going. But God cut it short. Yes, his uh, righteous anger against sin was still displayed, but his mercy did prevail. God's mercy is evident in a way that I don't even think David could see. He didn't know how right he was. Think about this we have David's sin and the sin of the nation that has caused a major plague, that has caused punishment. But God is willing to show mercy. And he says, as the chapter goes on, what you need to do is you need to offer a sacrifice. And so David buys the plot of land, and then he makes the sacrifice, and then the plague, it says at the end of the chapter, and the plague was averted from Israel. Does that not foreshadow what Jesus did for us once and for all? His, God's wrath is averted through the sacrifice of Jesus the ultimate sacrifice, God's mercy on display completely. And it was in this very region, right where David bought this plot of land and made a sacrifice. And that is the same region where God's mercy was displayed with Abraham. When God said, take your son, your only son, and sacrifice him, where God is testing him to see if his obedience to God, if his love for God outweighs his love for his son. And in that moment, God mercifully provides a substitute for Abraham. And then it's the same plot of land where the temple is constructed, where year after year, sacrifice after sacrifice takes place until the ultimate sacrifice takes place with the life of Jesus, when God's wrath is ultimately averted for the people of God. David didn't know all that. He had no idea what God was up to. But his trust in God's mercy was accurate with reality. And in our lives, we may have no idea what God is up to, but we can know that we can trust in him, that he is good, that he is sovereign, that he is merciful, that he is able to be trusted. And somehow even our mistakes don't mess up God's plans. I mean, though he 100% does not want us to sin, we are 100% unable to mess up the plans of God that means the moment you fall, you should get back up, get your eyes on God, trust in Him, and keep going. And that's exactly what we see David do. Let's look back at the text one last time as it comes to a close. We're going to read um, verse 17 on, where we see David's repentant heart, and then what follows. Verse 17 says, Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned, and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And Gad, that's the seer who told him about the three options, came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Aruna looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Aruna went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Aruna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the lord that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Aruna said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Aruna gives to the king. And Aruna said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Aruna, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. David did exactly what God said to do, and God accepted his sacrifice and stopped the plague. But look how David went about it. Um, In verse 17, we again see his sincere, repentant heart. He takes ownership over his his sin. He says, don't punish them, punish me. I'm the one who did wrong. Uh, In verse 18, David was told what to do. It said, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. And in verse 19, David got right up and did it. It says, so David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And then Aruna was willing to offer everything David needed for free. You know, it's like, just take care of this problem. Whatever you need, here it is. But even then, David, where his heart is at, he is wanting to please God at this point. He's repented, and he's saying, no, 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 I, I want to sacrifice, not just literally sacrifice what needs to be sacrificed, but I want it to cost me something. It's like the first chance David gets, he wants to please God, he is all in to wholeheartedly obey God. It would have been tempting for David, I would think, at this point, to fixate on what he did wrong, and the problem that it has caused to, you know, stay in bed in a sense and just pull the covers over your head and just lay there till hopefully the problems just all go away. But that's exactly what David did not do. Instead, he got up. He stopped focusing on what he did and he focused on God and what God wanted him to do. He kept pressing on. Ladies, that's what we need to do. We need to keep pressing on. That's point number three. We're going to mess up. We're going to mess up in, in maybe small ways, maybe ways that have some major consequences. Um, but we need to, uh, like David, see our sin, turn from it, bad motives, whatever it is, and get our eyes off of ourselves. We can't get paralyzed uh, by our mistakes. Uh, we can't try to retreat, you know, until we feel better about ourselves. We um, can't slow down because we think, oh, we're just, I'm just not as godly as I should be. How Satan would love to keep us down when we mess up or make us feel like we don't meet up. But we need to get used to the fact that we are a messy, weak tool. It's just who we are. Uh, picture yourself, you know, in, in God's garden, and you are one of the tools. Maybe you're a, a little shovel or a little rake. You're metal, right? You might rust. Uh, You might bend under the pressure of the work that you are supposed to do. You might get a little icky gunk on you. But how foolish it would be if you're like, I, I just can't do this. I quit. I'm not up for this anymore. Especially because the usefulness of the tool does not depend on the tool. It depends on whose hand the tool is in. God can use an imperfect tool. And here we are in spring, we're seeing you know, beautiful gardens everywhere. Just imagine the garden that God is working on. One day, the masterpiece that we will see. And you will get to look at that masterpiece and say, God used me to be a part of that. Assuming that you don't quit early because you aren't shiny and perfect. Because you're not going to be. You're going to mess up. And the point is not to glory in your mess or glory in the sin, not at all. It's to glory in the fact that God is willing to use even you, and he wants to. So when you mess up, when you feel weak, you got to get up, you got to get moving. If you want to turn with me to a familiar passage, Hebrews chapter 12, Uh, it follows a passage you're all, I'm sure, familiar with. In chapter 11, we have the hall of Faith where we hear story after story of faithful men and women who followed after God. And of course, David is in there. uh, In verse 32 of chapter 11, it speaks of David. And then we get to chapter 12. And it says, chapter 12, verse one. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We throw off our sin, uh, the sin we commit today, the sin we committed yesterday or years ago. We throw it off, we don't let it clean, because God has got a race for us to run. I know we won't do it perfectly jesus did and that's where we fixed our eyes he did it perfectly for us we fix our eyes on him and then we throw off whatever it is that keeps us from running the race god wants us to run I throw off any discouragement right sometimes it's not the actual sin but it's just the fact of being a sinner where we feel weak we feel like oh, i just can't keep doing this the way god wants me to do it day after day and we get discouraged we got to throw that off throw it off knowing that when we are weak, God is strong. Knowing that the Holy Spirit is going to help us. He's going to help us do what we need to do one day at a time. That's all we got to do. One day at a time, do what God asks you to do. You got to throw off the discouragement that comes when you start comparing yourself to other people. You see that godly person doing that thing, and that godly person, she always seems to have it together Because we think about it, we got this example of David. We've been studying him for two years, and we know he does not have it all together. And it's like his dirty laundry has been hanging up there for all of us to see for all of time. Right? Poor guy. But there he is, and we see that God used him greatly. That yes, he sinned, but he got back up. He kept going, and God used him. One last passage, uh, so encouraging as we think of David's example, is Acts 13 Turn there with me, if you will. Acts chapter 13, uh, the context is where Paul is traveling, sharing the gospel, and he's giving this large narrative of Scripture, showing how God's plans have been working out since the very beginning. And in Acts 13, 16, he, he starts talking about the Exodus. And as you keep going, he talks about Samuel. In verse 20, verse 21, we see that the people asked for a king, and so God gave them Saul. And then we get to verse 22, and it says, And when he had removed him, speaking of Saul, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. And as Paul goes on, David's mentioned a little bit more, but he's especially mentioned in verse 36. Let's read that. Acts chapter 13, verse 36 says, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. Meaning he wasn't resurrected like Jesus. You know, he's not Jesus. We need Jesus. But it says that he served the purpose of God in his generation. So much more is said of David all throughout Scripture. Um, some telling phraseology is, is seen in 1 Kings on, uh, where time after time, the kings are specifically compared to King David. Over and over, we read assessments that sound like this. In 1 Kings fourteen eight, it says, You have not been like my servant David, who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing only that which was right in my eyes. You read a phrase like that, it's almost shocking, right? Only did what? Only did right? You know, I mean, that passage alone, 2 Samuel 24, how did he only do right? But in God's eyes, he, yes, he was a sinful man. He messed up. But over and over again, he would see himself in light of God. He would realize he's a sinner. He would see God's holiness, and he would say, I want to obey God. I want to do what God wants me to do. He kept pressing on, seeking to do God's will. And that should, of course, be an encouragement to us. Yes, we will mess up. Uh, and there's so many things that we've learned over the last couple of years with First and Second Samuel. No, we won't do it all perfectly. Uh, But if we have a repentant heart, a soft heart, if we throw off the things that want to keep us down, that get us discouraged, we can follow heart after God. Maybe we can even accomplish the purpose of God in our generation through our lives. We can do this. We should do this. We should be women who really seek to have a heart after God's, that really trust Him, and that are willing to do whatever it is to have a heart that pleases him and seeks hard to live after him. Let's pray. God, we thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you uh, that you have so much in there for us. It's not just uh, the happy, shiny stories that uh, we read and we learn from, but we have examples like David, who in many ways uh, was a great example. The heart that he had that uh, was so set on pleasing you, uh, but yet we're thankful that we get to see his human side, that so many details are in Scripture for us to see of who he is and allows us to see that, yes, he was a messy tool, but he was used for your purposes. God, that's who we want to be. We know uh, that, that we are not exactly who we should be, maybe not even in, in big, grand ways, but deep in our hearts, our motives are not always set on pleasing you. Our motives can veer off. We don't please you to the core, and God, we want to. Help us to get back up day after day, moment after moment, to be women who desire to please you with all of their hearts. And God, I think of this whole last couple of years and all the time we spent in your word uh, at home with our binders and our Bibles open, uh, studying the text and then when we get together and we hear your word preached and we discuss in our groups and we pray and we hold each other accountable. Lord, may all of those things make a massive imprint on our lives. May we never be the same because of the time we spent thinking of your word, applying your word, listening to your word. God, may we be truly different women Women who have a heart after yours. In Jesus' name, amen.